You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, friends. Welcome. I have an extra special guest today. Byron Hutchison is somebody that I've had more in-depth conversations with than anyone on earth. I would say the life that each of us is living now is the result of some deep thinking and conversations like the one we have here today. I'll try to give you an idea of how much he means to me and has meant to my life before I tell you a little bit about Byron. When I went off to college to play baseball in Louisiana, he came to visit. When I moved to Kansas to play summer ball, he visited me there. He also provided perhaps the most memorable college baseball experience I had. Byron attended Baylor University, and my sophomore year we were playing at Baylor, and Captain Byro, as I like to call him, was in a fraternity at Baylor. And so he had his pledge class dress with a letter of my name on their chest. So unbeknownst to me, I come up to plate for my first at bat and there's a a small crowd going crazy for me in the stands down the left field line. And I look and there is my name going down the bleachers. (laughs) So he had the guy with the D stand at the top of the bleachers and then going down the stairs was my name. I mean, it was the coolest. I, I can't tell you how that makes you feel before you get in the, the batter's box. And they were required to cheer for me the entire weekend. So I had my own cheering section in what was a 10-hour bus trip from our university in Louisiana. Baylor's in Waco, Texas. And then after the, the series was over, he had them wait for me outside the gate, which was cool because it gave me an opportunity to shake their hands and thank them individually. Quite an awesome, memorable experience. If you don't have a friend that would do something like that for you, I recommend it. Then when Byron married about five or six years later, there was a guy at the wedding who introduced himself and said that he was the second in in my last name <laughs> that weekend in Waco. So that's really cool. Byron even served as the best man at my wedding. He and my brother were the two men standing next to me when I said I do. And they were the only ones that I asked to wear a suit, or I'm sorry, a tuxedo. If I had known Byron would wear it so well, I probably would have asked him to dress down. But he's 6'4", and he's got that salt and pepper look that drives the ladies wild, so what are you going to (laughs) do? When I'm in Houston, Byro and I try to have lunch about once a week. On average, we probably meet up for lunch about once every other week. And that's been going on for years. We've been friends since our sophomore year of high school. And he has long told me that he thinks I'm too ambitious. (laughs) I don't think he would say that now. But he's pretty ambitious himself. He, quote unquote, retired just this year. Of course, he's about my age. So in February, he called it quits from a finance job working for a commercial real estate company where he had worked since 2005. But in February, he struck out on his own and he's now putting together 
commercial real estate deals on his own. So he just put together a group that bought a shopping center in Houston just a few weeks ago. So we get into the details of that deal. We also talk about what life is like in early retirement. He's the father of two beautiful young girls. So I get into how he occupies his time, the walks that he takes, what he does, what he thinks about while he's walking. We do some angel investing, Byron and I. So we get into what it's like to invest with friends, what to look out for when investing with friends, the importance of budgeting, which I found this really insightful. Byron says that when he started making cuts to his budget about three years ago in order to achieve this retire early retirement goal that he had, he found himself unhappy. So we get into happiness and fulfillment, the joys of being a father. Byron has ideas for how we can change the university system for the better. Also, since we share a passion for travel, we get into visiting places like Prague and Costa Rica and Nicaragua. Also, we can't help but talk about the upcoming presidential election between Donald Trump, the incumbent, and former Vice President Joe Biden. Also, we discuss pervasive media bias and a whole lot more. This is a wide-ranging discussion. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's welcome Mr. Byron Hutchison. Byro, welcome to the show, man. Glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. We're sitting in a highfalutin area of Houston. What do we call this? Uh, this is Montrose. Okay. Montrose, Montrose is the gay area of Houston, right? Uh, formerly, it's been gentrified and it's kind of a eclectic mix of, you know, people that have lived here for 50 years and then, you know, a lot of dual income, no kid types, you know, your artists, your... This area has really appreciated and valued lately. I think this house that we're staying in, it's an old house built in, I believe, the 1920s. And it's now divided into five apartments. We rent for $1,500 a month. I imagine the owner gets about $1,500 from each apartment within this house. And he told me that he paid it off about, well, he bought it 17 years ago. He didn't tell me when he paid it off, but it is paid off. How much do you think he paid for this house? If he bought it 17 years ago, I suspect that he probably paid uh, anywhere between two hundred and three hundred thousand $300,000. What do you think it's worth today? I'm not sure just uh, if you're going to have an income approach to it or not, but I suspect that uh, people are going to be paying more for uh, the, the actual structure. So I'm guessing it's, you know, 800000 to a million dollars. Whoa. Yeah. You're doing pretty well in your house too, right? Uh, we're, we were pretty fortunate uh, in terms of timing when we bought bought our house. Uh, you know, Houston has seen a, a huge boom from from shale fracking that 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 really triggered the the drive up in 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 pricing. So, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, lenders stopped stopped loaning money even even to um, home builders. And what what happened in Houston is there was a lack of supply as as uh, jobs kept kept coming to town. Uh, a lot of foreign nationals moving here. Um, people from all all over the country, really, just because of the fracking boom. So, by 
2011, 2012, <clears throat> if you'd gotten in sometime between 09 and, and 2012, you, you've, you've done really well so long as you were located in, in an area that, that has uh, land value attributed to it. If you live 30 miles from the city, your lot may be worth $20,000. You didn't quite see the type of appreciation that you did if you, if you lived a little more uh, centrally located. So which year did you buy your house? Uh, 2012. Haven't you tapped the equity in your house because it's appreciated so much? Yeah, I've taken, I've pulled money out twice uh, for a couple different investments. Probably the first time I did that is, was 2015. Uh, I took out, I took out money for an investment, a, a fund uh, that I invested in. And friends, friends have franchise concept called Visiting Angels. So uh, I did it then, and then I probably did it. Uh, another time, I would say 24 months later, so maybe 2017. And we're talking about a significant amount of money, right? Like a hundred thousand? Uh, yeah. Uh, so I think that, I don't know the exact rules, but I, I've been told at least from my mortgage broker that you're only allowed to take out $150,000 in a, in a cash out refi. Uh, so that's, that's sort of, sort of where you tap out. And fortunately we were able to do that a couple of times. And so do you have a loan payment that you're paying for that equity that you tapped? Yeah. So the second, the second refi, we did a seven-year arm. So it's 2017, probably. We did a seven-year arm at 3%. Two triggers. So, so the max that our, our rate can increase to is 7% and not more than 2% a year after this, this seven years. So let's just say there's a huge run-up in inflation and, and we see interest rates spike. In one year, our, our interest rate could go from three to five percent, uh, and then another another time it goes to seven percent the following year. But then it's it's capped out there. So that that is nice to have those those when you don't do a more conventional loan like a, a fifteen or thirty year. The fact that you do have sort of a cap on on that the interest rate, it, it's nice to have on a seven year arm. But I think probably what we'll end up doing is is refining again since interest rates are so low. And an arm is an adjustable rate mortgage. So when does it adjust? It's uh, we probably have four years left on it. So the, has it adjusted 3%. already? Mm -mm. No, no. So the first seven years, it's three percent. Thereafter, you know, you you could see an increase just depending on on where rates are at that time. But every month you make a loan payment, and that's covered by this investment that you made in in visiting angels. Yeah, sure. Um, my distributions are quarterly through Visiting Angels. Uh, so we put more money into the Visiting Angels than, than the money we took out. So so it's kind of commingled, but we thought, hey, you know, the returns on, on this investment opportunity are double digits, interest rates are 3%. It's, it's really accretive to go ahead and pull money out and put extra money in. And how did you know that about Visiting Angels? Had they had a proven track record of double digit returns for years? The two guys that I invested with, uh, they were looking to raise a little bit of money uh, they felt that the opportunity to purchase additional franchises was was disappearing. So a lot of times with with franchise opportunities, you know the the country gets gobbled up. Uh, so you have a handful of successful operators. Uh, what what happens is the best territories get gobbled up. Um, so it, it's really a race to exploit this this a proven franchise concept. So uh, these two guys feared that. Uh, all the good markets would be gone. And, and so instead of kind of doing one or two franchises a year, they decided to buy 10 
over a two-year period and, and really ramp up. So they went from 20 franchises to 30 franchises. Uh, and their second fund, they they did, you know, a dozen more. So, you know, they had anywhere between 40 and 50 franchises total. It's it's a low-cost franchise concept. Low overhead, right? I mean, aren't they paying pretty much minimum wage to a visiting angel, which visits the elderly? Is that what's happening? It's not medical staffing for the elderly, typically. Um, you know, it could be it could be others, but it, it's certainly not a daycare for children. Uh, but someone that has physical disabilities, mental disabilities, uh, not necessarily elderly. That's kind of the background. But what it is is it's it's more so I would I would consider it from a business perspective a staffing company. So, uh, you know, really what you have is a management team that are salaried and then everything else is a variable expense. Uh, so, you know, your caregivers are paid hourly. You, you don't pay them unless they're, they're working a job and there's probably a, a 30 to 40% margin there. If the caregiver is making $10 an hour, then they're probably charging 13 or $14. So it's a, a $4 profit. Uh, and and don't quote me on this because I'm not I'm not the operator, right? I've just done some passive investing. Two questions: How did you become privy to a deal like that? And didn't you consider at one time becoming an operator? Uh, I did. Yeah. Uh, the the two guys are, are two two friends from college. Uh, they they had reached out and asked if I wanted to buy into one of their locations. It's their their oldest and most established location. Really successful. Um, but it was in a, a market that I, I don't know that I'd, I'd want to live in. It would have required a significant amount of income or capital, pardon me, for, for me to invest with them. Uh, but it's a stable cash flow and it's been a cash flow for 15 years for them. It, it would have been a great opportunity if at that time we were willing to move to a, a city smaller than Houston. Probably the biggest concern for us at that time was my wife's career. And, and her having to give that up. So she's, she's very uh, career focused and driven. We only had one child at the time. Uh, you know, now uh, I'm looking for a slower life, slower, slower pace. So it would be a lot more appealing to me than it was five years ago when that, that opportunity presented itself. Uh, so no, no regrets on my end. If I had the opportunity today, I, it might be a, a different conversation. What interests you most? Is it the people you're buying into or is it more the concept? They bought or started franchises uh, that weren't performing well. Uh, and and you, you see the successful trend. And a good friend of mine once mentioned to me that, that what you should do, proven operator, knows what they're doing, uh, you, you should invest. Because once you've kind of developed the recipe it, it's just a plug and play. It's very rare that you have the opportunities to invest with people in a, in a franchise concept. But if you're a successful McDonald's operator with one, you're going to be with your second one. You're going to be with your third one. I just had someone on the podcast who has started four or five entrepreneurial endeavors and was seeking investors recently. And you and I decided to invest and it's primarily because we believe in him. We know that he's committed full time. He was telling me a story about how one of his ventures, which was a fast food restaurant, led to another venture. Did he tell you about that? Yeah, I've uh, actually tried to get him to let me invest in that. <laughs> really? 
He said no? Uh, yeah, well, I, I talked to his partner, who's, who's also a, f- a friend of mine, and I just said, hey, when, when you guys are ready to kind of scale this thing, you know, I'd love to be able to put a little bit of money in. Isn't that interesting how when you get older, your friends become more successful and then opportunities open for you to invest, but you have to have been diligent enough to have saved and invested some money yourself so that you have some cash sitting on the sidelines or you're willing to tap the equity in your home. You're much more pro debt than I am. I don't know, especially at the age at which we were, which was about early 30s. I don't know that I would have tapped $300,000 in equity from my house. Yeah, I I think uh, I'm in real estate. You know, that's what I I do for a living. I see equity in a home as as something that's not being put to work. so, and that, that's just like fundamentally driven into me through, through my background in, in commercial real estate investing. You know, it, you know, if you have, let's just call it $300,000, if you have that uh, and it's just sitting there, it, it's earning $0. And I, I just, it's not something I'm comfortable with. So any opportunity to pull, pull equity out of my home, so long as we have a consistent cash flow and it's not going to impact our our way of life. So, you know, if it was a, you know, let's call it $5,000 increase in, in our mortgage, you know, even, even less than that, I'm just you know throwing our number at some threshold, you got to say, Hey, is this going to materially impact our, our day-to-day lives? And if it is, then it doesn't do any good to, to lose sleep at night. And we were comfortable enough with, uh, with that additional, that additional debt service. Is that what happened? It added, several thousand dollars to your mortgage payment? No, because interest rates are so low today. Uh, so we'll call it 3% on $150,000 slug at a time. You know, you're not talking about a material amount of interest. And then you're, in fact, resetting your amortization period as well, right? Explain that, please. So you're, you may have had 25 years remaining on your mortgage. Well, now you have 30. So you're drawing out the, the the payment period because of the refi right right yeah so uh you know it's some people see that as a good thing some people see that as a bad thing uh so if you ever want to if your goal of yours is to pay off your home you know you should probably never refi right it's kicking the can down the road and and having additional debt and you've always been opposed to what i would call dead money even I can remember when we were, let's say, early 30s also, I remember you saying a friend of ours was, wasn't so bright for keeping $100,000 in cash that he needed to get that money to work. And I think a lot of that attitude, if for lack of a better word, stems from where we've come from and like what the markets have done since we, let's say, graduated from college. It informs your perspective based on what markets have done since we came out of college. But right now, especially with the onset of COVID in March, you and I were kind of scrambling to get our hands on more money to invest. And had we had some cash on the sidelines, if we had an extra $100,000, that could have been deployed so quickly. But we weren't in a position to do that. Yeah, I think uh, I'm guilty of it, too, Uh 
at, at different points in time of 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 having too much money in in the bank, right? Um, so it, it's it's hard, especially someone like me, where I, I rarely invest in in equities. The last thing I want to do is go have to pick individual stocks and then uh, monitor them. Like that's you know I want my money, you know, my passive money or my investing money to be with someone else and and them be a steward of it uh, rather than me having to check what's happening in the market and the volatility on a on a daily basis. And by someone else, you mean several other people, several someone else's. You're not you're not giving it to Madoff one. You're not giving it yeah. to one guy to oversee and be a steward of your money. You're talking about investing in different good people of high integrity who are overseeing a specific investment for you. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you can find them, right? It's not easy to find opportunities for several different reasons, right? Uh, you know, you know, you and I have talked before about uh, uh, the requirement of accredited investors, uh, which is I'm not sure if if uh, your audience is familiar with that, but basically, you know, you, you hear a lot of times people talk about how the, the rich get richer, and you know, everyone else just just struggles through life. Well, you know, one of the things, one of the first things that I I realized when I first started investing in opportunities that 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 friends ventures that friends were putting together is that there is a call it either a balance sheet requirement to to invest in things uh, that aren't monitored by the SEC and or an income threshold. So if you're single, you need to make. I think it's $200,000 a year uh, for the last three years and expect to make it the following year to be considered an accredited investor. Uh, if you're married, the, the threshold is $300,000. Otherwise, you can meet it through uh, a net asset test. And I believe that's a million dollars excluding equity in your primary residence. What I've found as, as I've started to connect with people that own businesses or real estate opportunities is, is they have this requirement. So, you know, someone like you or I, once you hit that number, those opportunities start to present themselves. Um, but, but we're both sophisticated enough in investing to where we can analyze our own risk and, and make the decisions on whether or not we think an opportunity is, is a, is a good fit for us. The government puts these, these restrictions in place to prevent people like Bernie Madoff from taking money from, you know, uh, a school teacher or um, some 80 year old woman on fixed income. Uh, so I, I understand why government restrictions are in place. Uh, but at the same time, it, it does hurt, you know, someone that's motivated and, and sophisticated enough to make investment decisions on their own. A libertarian would be severely opposed, right? I mean, you're, you've got SEC regulations that are designed to be consumer protections, but one of the reasons a libertarian would be for less government and more personal freedom is so that they could make that decision on their own. You and I are real estate guys. We remember what it was like in 2008, 2009, when we had lenders issuing what were deemed as predatory loans. And of course, it's polit politically expedient to say that the lenders were at fault and the banks were at fault as they packaged these loans and resold them and made a shit ton of money. But consumers were ultimately at fault because 
I know from personal experience helping people to get mortgages that a lot of them, you could not talk them out of getting a mortgage. Even if I said, hey, this is going to be 40% of your income, you can't afford that sort of mortgage payment. You weren't going to talk them out of it. They were convinced that real estate prices have always appreciated and they were going to sign where the line was dotted. There's nothing I could do. So there are regulations put in place to protect people from predatory lending, from more obscure investments like VC, like hedge funds, like investing in franchises like Visiting Angels. And it's unfortunate. Was the, was the Visiting Angels deal, was that a situation where you had to be incre- accredited or was it more like in real estate syndications, they designate what's called a 503B from a 503C. A B is more of a friends and family sort of deal, whereas a 503C, you can openly market for investors on Facebook, for example. Hey, I'm seeking investors. We're trying to raise $2.5 million. I'm, I'm getting 25 investors to do 100000 or 50 to do 50000 You know, whatever it is. There's a differentiation there. Does that differentiation exist also in the sort of angel investing that you're talking about? Yeah, I would say uh, just from a liability perspective, anyone that's raising money is typically going to require that you be an accredited investor, Uh, you know, just cover their basis. You know, their their lawyers are absolutely going to make them do that. And then they're going to limit that typically, you know, on these private investments, they're going to limit the number of investors so, uh, because over a certain number of investors, you, it, it then becomes a security and that that's where you start getting the security rules. So I think you can, and, and again, I'm not an expert on any of this, right? So my, my numbers could be off, but the, the basic foundations of, of, of rules, you know, are, are, uh, <clears throat> I, I have a, a small understanding of it. But I, I know that you can have some investors that aren't accredited um, in, in a given deal, but over a certain threshold, you start running into trouble. So typically, uh, almost every deal that I see, a private offering, it, it's going to eliminate anyone that, that isn't an accredited investor. And they'll verify this by having you send over your Vanguard funds and your 401k and your uh, brokerage accounts of any sort? I think real estate equity you might have outside of your primary residence because that can't be included, correct? Right. I've never actually had to provide proof, but I I have signed documents stating that I am an accredited investor. Uh, So, but, but no one in any deal that I've ever done has, has actually asked me to, to provide proof. That's so interesting because my start in investing was, real estate. I bought my first home with what was called a stated income loan or what's been referred to as liar loans where they asked me, <laughs> Brad, what do you think you're going to make this year? And I was like, 50,000. I was fresh out of college. I didn't come close to making that. Yeah. But I didn't either my the- first year out of college. <laughs> yeah. Nowhere near that. And it's crazy that we're now using the same terminology that was used back then, like adjustable rate mortgages. And then you just stated, well, I, I wasn't verified. They didn't even check. Or it makes you realize just how bubbles are created, like something that may seem so obvious, like, hey, this is a little, you know, a little obscure and people are taking advantage of, of loopholes or whatever. But then 
we make those decisions because we're confident in ourselves and our abilities, but not everybody's like us. You know what you know what I'm saying? So they end up making a poor decision for themselves. Like when I got my stated income loan, the homeowner on either side of me, my neighbors were foreclosed on. Wow. Yeah. And I think the reason is because we had homeowners association dues that were 360 a month. The mortgage amounted to about 750 a month, something like that. And I just think that they didn't calculate the HOA dues and they were unable to pay those. Did they need to be protected by the government? Yeah, maybe. But then there are other people that want to get investing as fast as possible and take some chances. So it's, it's interesting. It's the idea of your HOA being a uh, 50% of of your mortgage is it that that's a tough pill to swallow for a lot of people. Um, so, you know, I can, I can definitely see how people could run into trouble, especially in that, that first, that first condo that you purchased. It's unfortunate. Um, you know, it, it's tough because if you aren't in a finance field or have some sort of education in it, you know, a lot of times, you know, people, people don't budget. And, and if you, if you're not kind of doing the math on, on your income, your expenses, uh, you, you can get into some trouble. Um, and, and I'm guilty of it too. You know, I, uh, I haven't done a good job of budgeting until probably three years ago. And, and from a budgeting perspective, I just got an understanding of where my expenses are, uh, rather than actually doing anything about it. But at least we knew where we were spending money. It's hard, you know, especially with two kids, uh, to, to, you know, chop some, chop some wood there because I was at the time I was looking to exit corp, the corporate world, salary, bonus structure, um, where, where your income and your, your bonuses are, are pretty fixed at the, the group that I was working at. One of my ideas is that I wanted to be retired by 40, <laughs> you know, that was, that was my goal. And I sat there and I looked at the budget and I said, ah, it, it's, it's hard to cut some of this stuff out. Other things, you know, you sit there and you look at it and you say, you still need to enjoy life, right? So, so originally, well, when I was focused on, on leaving the corporate world, I, I said, all right, we're going to just, we're going to hack these expenses to pieces. And when we didn't do it, it, I found myself being unhappy, um, and, you know, you make, let's call it a thousand dollar cut to, to your budget. When, when you start focusing too much on that, the progress can impact your happiness, right? Like I'm not achieving the goal that I wanted to because, you know, we can, as a family, reduce those expenses. One of the reasons Scott Adams talks about having systems versus goals is because when you set goals 99% of the time, you're in pre-success mode. You're striving and stressing yourself out to achieve a goal. And once you achieve the goal, you only get to celebrate a little bit and then you set your next goal. So that's why he's an advocate for systems, which I totally understand. But a lot of it has to do with your psychological makeup and understanding that most of the joy in life is climbing, right? Getting toward your goal. I think what you're saying is that you maybe didn't have as much control as you would have liked once you started narrowing down what it is that you were trying to achieve because 
maybe you hadn't gotten your wife on board yet. And maybe she's spending in areas that you wouldn't spend if you were single like I was, let's say. I could cut $1,000 easily and not have to worry about my wife and kid. But then when you looked at yours, you're like, well, we're spending $1,500 on daycare and you know, we can move down the street and put them in this $1,200 daycare and that's saving $300. Is that sort of what you're getting at? Yeah, it's uh, absolutely. So what, what I found when I was, I, I had set this goal and I was like, hey, I want to be at, at a point at called the age of 40 where I can, I can leave my corporate job and I can go just kind of do, do what I want, right? Get, get to a passive income level, you know, get control of where our, our expenses are. And kind of just do what I want, you know, similar, similar to your, your lifestyle. And I, I want to say have jobs, you have a job or I, you know, I don't know how, to, <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is passion projects is what I work on. Yeah. It, Hobbies. It, I wanted flexibility to do what I wanted with my life. Right. You know, I, I, I walk my daughter in first grade. I walk her to school every morning. Right. You know, uh, when I was working a corporate job, I couldn't do that. And so I wanted to get to that point where I I have the opportunity to do what I want when I want. And but what I found as I was trying to achieve those goals is that it, it made me unhappy. The requirements to get to that goal. And I kind of refocused and looked to do something else to kind of to kind of fill that void. If that makes sense. It does make sense. I love how you talked about part of life is living that you have to spend money and certain cuts could make you unhappy. But most people don't take the time to do that assessment. So it's impressive that you did that, one. And then, two, you also realize that the ideal way to live your life is to have complete and total freedom over how you spend your day. The only way that you're going to get there is by owning equity, either in businesses or real estate equity, but building wealth through these different avenues so that you don't have to trade your time for money. Regardless of whether you're a doctor or an attorney or you were in commercial real estate, you were in corporate finance, right? Mm -hmm. Regardless of what your hourly wage is, if you're on vacation or you're sleeping, you're not making any money. And so if you want to achieve financial freedom, you're going to have to start taking some risk like taking money out of your home, tapping that equity in order to generate some passive revenue streams. That way, once your expenses are exceeded by that passive income, then you are financially free, you are effectively retired, and then you can work on whatever, whatever it is you want to work on. You talked about me, for example. What I'm able to do now is completely follow my intellectual curiosity, and it's very fulfilling. I don't have to set my alarm clock. I can start working, quote unquote, working on whatever it is that I want to work on at any time. I can work as many hours as I want. It may look like work to my wife, but it's not to me. It's play to me. I, I love doing what I do. And if it makes money, wonderful. It's kind of fun to make money, but it's not imperative. And that's what financial freedom is all about, is, is following your curiosities and serving and impacting other people, getting to spend more time with your kids. Yeah, I I admire that you were on that path too and really started to focus on your finances and figure out where it is that I can cut so that I can achieve this goal by the time I'm 40 and do whatever it is that I want to do with my life. And for you, what it seems like to me is that you want to be 
a full-time investor, right? That's what you're doing now. And, and I want to talk about that. So you recently quit your full-time job. You just turned 40, what, a year ago. Yep. Why did you decide to do that? I made the leap once I got to a place where I knew that the residual income from some passive investments would get me to, to where I need to be on a, from, from our fixed expense perspective. It helps that my wife works full-time, but the idea that I could go try and create additional income through investments while still having that fallback of, of passive income that I get on a quarterly basis was was really the the jump start for me. And I'd built enough liquid cash to as a reserve. Last November, I was working for a private equity group based in Dallas, real estate private equity group. Uh, last November, I told them, I want to go out and do, do things on my own. So I stayed with them until February. The end of February, you know, we decided to, to go our separate ways. And I've kind of been doing what I want to do professionally. Uh, obviously, COVID has, has impacted that. But I've also gotten to spend a lot of time with my daughters. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, and then my, my first opportunity kind of popped up just through uh, a good friend that I've discussed going and buying real estate with this opportunity kind of popped up out of nowhere and it seemed a no brainer to me. So we actually just closed on our, our first real estate deal together last week. Okay. So you effectively retired, right? I mean, you're no longer in the corporate world receiving a salary. You decided you were going to be a full-time, is it a GP? Is that what you would call yourself? Yeah. A general partner. So what, what we'll do is we'll go put deals together. We'll go raise equity. Um, on, on opportunities that we think are, are, are good. And, and, you know, we'll go raise, we'll put in, call it 20% of the capital probably. And then we'll go raise 80, the, the remaining 80% from friends and family or, or other sources and, and just go out and have fun. It's so crazy that despite your being a real estate guy, you effectively retired from the corporate world through franchise investing that has nothing to do with real estate. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's it's obviously helpful that my wife has an income, right? Uh, so all I was trying to do was replicate my my base salary or or something close to that, uh, and then at the same time have enough equity set aside to where I can put in money into into these real estate deals. Ideally. Uh, I don't even touch the passive income that I get today, right? That's that's the best case scenario, but we're, we're prepared to live off of that if we need to. For me, I want to take every passive dollar that I get and reinvest that in real estate. That That's my goal. Or other opportunities like, like you and I have done in the past together. For those who might be interested in investing with friends of theirs, can you talk about how that comes together for people who would be interested in doing that? Uh, well, what do you mean? Well, like, what are we looking for and what is our philosophy, our oh, okay, investing sure. philosophy? Yeah. So I, I would say we've, we've been really lucky in that we have friends that are interested in entrepreneurial things and, and, you know, we're not putting a lot of money, I, I guess it's all relative, but you know, this is, this is, this is fun, uh, let it ride kind of, kind of money. And, and certainly in the, the, the two deals that we've invested together, we we have no real expectation of uh, any meaningful returns, but if they do do make, then 
you know, it's a home run, right? I would say if you're going to invest with friends, both sides, right? As as the person taking money and the and the one giving money. Let's start with with the one taking money. You want to make sure you're taking money from friends that that aren't requiring that to to live off of, right? You obviously want to be a good steward of their money, but at the same time, uh, you you want to make sure that that they're not sweating or their wife isn't sweating over what's happening with with their money. Uh, as as someone that wants to invest with friends, uh, you know I would say that what you want to make sure you do is that this the they're 100 committed to their project. The last thing you want to do is give money to someone for for a side project. You want this to be a major focus in in their life, and you obviously the character of the person that you're giving the money to are, are, are really important. You know, I recently invested in a software company. I haven't spoken to the guy since college, but he was he was a fraternity brother of mine in college, and uh, he was probably the most responsible person that I knew in college. You know, he so. Uh, having not spoken to him a long time, a mutual friend, uh, he reached out to a mutual friend and said, Hey, I'm, I'm starting the software company. I think it's a good opportunity. I'm, I'm looking for accredited investors. You know, do you, is there anyone that you can think of that, that may be interested? And sure enough, he connected the two of us and, and I was really grateful for the opportunity because, uh, this guy's really intelligent. Um, and he's, he's phenomenal character. Uh, and then this is his second second software company. So he exited out of he sold a software company to a big healthcare provider, a forty billion dollar healthcare provider last year. You know, my first question to him is, you know, what why are you doing this again? I mean, you know, don't you want to relax? And he said, Well, was COVID not enough? <laughs> you know, being stuck in your house all day. With, with your kids, I, I, I understand where he's coming from. That, that, was, that was enough. One, his character. Uh, two, that, that he's done it before. And three, there's motivation to get the hell out of his house. Yeah, it can be tough to gauge someone's motivation because you'll hear managers say that they want salespeople who are extremely motivated by debt. So they want them to have that Porsche or the three-story house or whatever it is, so that their back is against a wall and they've got to go to work full speed. But if you're interviewing Kobe Bryant, you're you're not going to take into account how much debt he has. Like, you know that that person is committed to excellence. And so when you're gauging the, the character of someone you're going to hire or you're going to invest in their startup, I think it's critical that you get a sense of how conscientious they are, that they want to do well, that in addition to, of course, being a high energy, high character sort of person, do they have this mode about them that it's tough to turn it off? Are they ambitious? You know, it's people who retire at age 40, for example, aren't going to be content to sit on a hammock every day. You have to occupy your time and generally you're not going to put something out into the world that is that is sub subpar you know what i mean yeah and also you know to to come back to the the character thing right you want someone that is more concerned or or will stay up at night um thinking about your money 
rather than theirs, right? So, so for me, you know, I'm investing in something with, with friends and I don't ever have any sort of expectation of a return uh, on the, the higher risk stuff, right? Like, hey, this is a gamble. I know it's a gamble. But personally, like, I'm fine losing my own money. You know, what, what keeps me up at night is the possibility of losing someone else's. You know, someone, someone's relying on that, that money and, and, and being able to return that to him is, is really important to me. So that's something that I really struggle with from a risk perspective uh, when looking at real estate investing opportunities. Which is a good segue. So is it just last week that you closed your first real estate deal as a general partner? That's that's correct, yeah. Okay. Can you tell me how that deal came together? So it's, uh, are you looking for specifics on the type of well, investment or? You had left your corporate job and you're now a full-time commercial real estate investor. You want to put deals together and so you, you need to raise money. You've already said that you're going to come up with 20% of the capital. Is is that what you Typically, did in this case? So yeah. the property was in Houston. Correct. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a small retail shopping center, 10,000 square feet in the Spring Branch submarket, West, which is West Houston. It's, it's seven miles from the Energy Corridor, seven miles from downtown. It's about a mile from I-10. On the south side of I-10, you have what's called a super zip code, right? So... Um, which means the demographics in that zip code meet um, some pretty astronomical income levels. Uh, so what's happened over, let's say, the last 10 years, as you've seen this huge run-up in real estate pricing in, in Houston, uh, you've seen people spill over uh, north of I-10, which is, is where we're located. Uh, so the opportunity uh, has million-dollar homes next to apartment projects that, you know, are, are very low income that, uh, you know, may, may lease out for $500 a month. So it, it's what I would call a gentrifying area of town. And we, we purchased this shopping center. It was on the market. The, one of the uh, two guys that I partnered with on the deal sourced the deal through a, a broker that he has a relationship with here in town. So he flipped the investment opportunity over to me. And I just said, Hey, this is too good to pass up. Let's offer full ask. Let's be really aggressive on our due diligence period, uh, closing timeline, and, and and let's go get this done. So it was on the market. Does that mean there's a multiple so, listing service type of deal for it, commercial real estate? It was a quietly marketed deal. So they went to local operators in in the area. So I'd say they probably went to five or 10 groups. They ended up having three full ask offers. Um, it was a very quick process and, and I think two things pushed it over the edge for us. One, one of my two partners is, has, I believe that he owns the most shopping centers, retail shopping centers in the Heights. Um, but it's, it's very under the radar. Uh, so people, people don't know that, that he's that active in the Heights, which is, uh, another area that's seen significant gentrification in the last, call it 10 to 20 years. He, he was, I think was the impetus, his, his background, his balance sheet, um, his knowledge and his relationship with the broker kind of, kind of pushed it in our favor. So tell me about getting the money from investors. Uh, so we put together a little pitch book. It was probably 15 pages. We took some, some pictures. Uh, we did a pro forma, laid out the strategy for, for our investment opportunity, 
It's a 10-year hold. What does that mean? A 10-year hold means that this opportunity plan to own it for 10 years. So investors should know that that it's a long investment horizon. A lot of times with with real estate opportunities where you're you're taking on additional investors, you you want to exit within five years. That's 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 more traditional approach when you're going out and raising equity from outside investors. This one is a little unique because uh, the the shop rents are well below market. The shopping center was owned by the same family since 1972. The <clears throat> the woman that's operating it today uh, inherited it from her father in 1988, and so she's operated it outside of her day-to-day work for the last 30 years or so. We believe there's an opportunity to re-tenant the spaces and increase rents. So what we want to do is we want to reset rents. Let's call it, let's say tenants are paying $12 a foot today. We think that the market is probably closer to $20 a foot. So our idea is to roll those tenants or roll them to market. Um, What does that mean? Uh, as, as their leases come up, increase their rent to market for the submarket, uh, or go out and release the space to someone else. And then we also feel that the neighborhood is only going to get better over time. So typically what you would see in an investment opportunity like this is someone would want to go in, jack up the rents uh, to market, and then s- exit out of the opportunity. Be- well, it's this is getting a little more complex than then probably you or your audience care to care to know, but um, typically a general partner is is motivated to get out of an opportunity quicker because as as certain internal return hurdles are met, the general partner will receive a greater distribution of the uh, income. So uh, just to to break it down in a more simple term. Let's say if I can deliver to you, Brad, a 15% IRR, then I want to take 50 cents out of every dollar above that 15% IRR. You know, that's, that's a, t- a pretty traditional general partner approach to, to assets. Well, in, in the calculation of the internal rate of return, the sooner you can give the money back to the investors, the higher the IRR. I don't like being motivated that way. Right, I, I want to put my money to work and your money to work together, um, and and not be focused on those those promote hurdles. So what I am more interested in doing is is collecting a small fee on the front end, and and having your money ride with my money. And if I need to collect some asset management fees because I am doing work, I'm the one talking to the tenants, I'm collecting rent checks, I'm speaking with vendors, I'm the one that gets a phone call if there's a roof leak. Moving forward, you're the landlord. Correct. Yeah. So it's a ten thousand square foot shopping center. How many units are inside there? Uh, there's five spaces today. Um, only four are occupied. We have one eight hundred square foot vacancy. They 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 left in at the end of June. Uh, a dentist. So we're our first steps are to. First step is to lease up that space, um, and then we have two tenants that whose leases expire early next year. So we're going to we're gonna put proposals to them at uh, increased rents or offer them the opportunity to stay on a month-to-month basis while we go out and look for, for a tenant that's willing to pay those rents. And at the same time, we, we raise additional equity on the front end 
to to refinish the shopping center. So we're going to put on a new facade, replace the parking lot, uh, and and a portion of the roof that has that needs to be replaced. Okay, so how much money did you raise? What did you pay for the place? And then what kind of rents are you expecting initially? It was a smaller deal. So it was a $1.5 million purchase price. We were able to get a 75% loan to value, which is is, is really high, uh, especially right now. But fortunately, one of my partners was able to lean, lean on a lending relationship. So really, I think you know we probably only needed $350,000 of capital on the front end. But what we wanted to make sure we could do is avoid capital calls. So we raised a total of $635,000. So that'll give us additional cash to meet debt service if we have to roll these tenants uh, during that downtime. And then also a couple hundred thousand dollars to refinish the shopping center to make sure we can get those those market rents. Okay, so the return now is like what five percent, and then you hope to get it up to ten. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I would almost call it um, dilutive. The the loan, so it, it it would almost be better today to have paid all cash than than to put a loan on the property. But we wanted to limit the number of equity investors that we had in the deal, so um, we put a loan on, and so we're. We're maybe cash flowing after debt service today, probably $30,000. We have our first year is interest only. Uh, 12 months from now, we'll have to start paying our debt service. And at that point in time, we'll probably break even until we were able to roll those tenants to market. How much did you seek from investors total? We raised we raised $520,000 from outside investors. And how many investors? Um, Ten. So okay. fifty thousand dollar chunks. Okay, and then you said earlier that you like to put up about twenty percent of the capital. Is that what you did here? Yeah, we put up uh, one hundred and fifteen thousand, and we raised five hundred and twenty thousand dollars. And the rest is mortgage. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Right. And then what is that? What what are they not gaining access to for ten years? The investment hold period is ten years. So uh, our goal is to roll tenants to market, get what? it up to. Yeah, talk to me like I'm five. What is role tenants to market? <laughs> you, mean? Michael Scott. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, so we want to stabilize the shopping center at market rents today, where it, let's just call it twenty dollars a foot. So um, once we can get it close to twenty dollars a foot, thereabout, uh, we're gonna go and refinance the property. And the goal is to return all the equity back to the investors. So our goal is to, to return all of their equity. So $635,000, ideally by the end of year four, we'll have returned $635,000 to investors. And then we want to hold it an additional five to six years. Um, but really what we're going to do is make a determination after four or five years if we feel that the neighborhood's going to continue to improve and we can continue to grow rents above market then we'll we'll hold and and keep keep rolling if we're having success otherwise once we we get it up to market rents today we're going to sell the asset and uh just return return all profits to to the investor uh, after how many years 4 to 5 years why would you do that uh if if we don't feel like we can continue to grow the rents then 
what what's the point in keeping the asset, right? Cash so, flow. You, but a lot of time, yes, you and I think that way, right? I I want we call it mailbox money, right? I, that's that's my goal. But a lot of times, a sophisticated investor is is more focused on you know high yields. So we're going to hopefully deliver an eighteen percent IRR to our investors. That's that's what we pro forma. Uh, we'd like to think that we we took a conservative approach to that, uh, but you never know, right? I mean, there's there's no guarantees, re- regardless how your your level of knowledge or sophistication in in the asset class, right? Will our goal is to deliver an eighteen percent return to the investors, and if we feel like after four or five years the the shopping center can't do that, we'll we'll kind of come up with an exit strategy. And do you speculate the sort of appreciation that you might get in four to five years? Yeah, so it's it's all driven by what what's called cap rates, which is uh, you know a, an unlevered return on an asset. So they take existing income and divide it by the purchase price, and that's how you determine a cap rate. We are going in cap rates is sub five, right? So you you mentioned that, uh, and uh, on our exit we assume a seven percent cap rate. I think a stabilized asset today is probably, you know, that type of asset stabilized, cleaned up, like we we want to do. You know, would probably trade between a six and a six and a half cap. So we we feel pretty confident that uh, that a seven cap is is conservative in our underwriting. So if it's worth two point three million dollars in five years, would the investors then get? 800,000 divided by or however many investors there are. So let's say we had we had a 1.125 loan, 1.125 million, right? So if if you sold it for 2.3 million dollars in 4 years, we would have you know call it 1.2 million dollars of equity that we would be able to return to investors. It's uh there's no guarantees that you you're going to be able to sell it for 2.3 million dollars, but that's the power of leverage, which is you and I have discussed that in the past where I feel like you should go put debt on some of your unlevered houses and and go out and buy two additional houses or three or, or whatever it is. It's tough. You know, I personally guaranteed this loan. You know, that's that's a big deal. Which mostly happens, right? General partners yep. tend to have to do that. That's correct. Yeah. Um, right now in retail, right? People People are afraid of retail. Lenders are in particular, um, so you you really between COVID uh, and you know the retail investments, you know lenders are, are having a hard time. I think maybe in six months that'll open back up and you'll start being able to see some opportunities to do loans that won't require you to kiss the note. But uh, right now, uh, the only way you're getting anything done in retail is by personally guaranteeing. What does kiss the note mean? Uh, just, you're signing on personally for, for the whole loan. So when I was talking about, quote unquote, retiring, you said to me, well, will you still be able to save money? And I said, yes. And you said, no brainer. Mm-hmm. Do you think if your wife didn't have such a successful career that you would be living the life that we're living now because I know you're a big fan of traveling the world and you've been a lot of places I haven't been 
I know you like to travel as much as I do. I'm curious if you would do something like we're doing if your wife didn't have such a successful career. It's hard to say. You know, I think that if I had the passive income I have today and I, I wasn't married, I I would probably be interested in in having a, a life like a nomadic lifestyle uh, or at least settling in a country that's that's more affordable than the United States and, and creating a home base there similar to what you're doing. Right. So it, as long as that passive income could allow me to continue saving money, uh, I would I would definitely be interested in, in living overseas, but wife, two kids, it's, it's not practical. My, my biggest goal, I would say two to three years ago was I, I wanted to be able to take a month or two off during the summer to, to travel with my girls. And so what we've kind of decided we're going to do is my wife, what we'll do is we'll say, all right, school gets out May 31st. All right. The girls and I'll jump on a plane to, you know, pick a place, uh, the Mediterranean, Southern Spain, and we'll we'll rent a place for two months. And what we do is is have my wife do two weeks with us. So, call it the last week of June and the first week of July. And so she'll, and she probably has a couple of days that for for Fourth of July. Uh, so for her, you know, she'd be eating into maybe eight of her vacation days, and she's been with the same hospital for eighteen years. So. And she has a nice bank built up, so it wouldn't really impact her. She'll get to be with us two out of those eight weeks, and it'll be smack dab in the middle. And so that's that's kind of the ideal scenario for me. Whether or not we do that and how how intensive my, my work is on the real estate side is, is going to determine that. But I do have two, two other general partners with me, so uh, one, one can pick up the slack for, for the other ones, and, and we've discussed it at length and, and all understand that, you know, we want that flexibility and, and are happy to kind of carry the load for each other when, when we go and do things like this. I'm a little bit concerned, like investing in commercial real estate right now doesn't seem like the hottest thing to be investing in because everything has shifted from office to work from home or shopping to buying everything on Amazon with COVID and we don't know what the future holds. Is that why you're taking advantage of commercial real estate right now, thinking that it's the prices are depressed and that they'll eventually come back up? I mean, people are fleeing New York and LA in droves right now. My uneducated guess on office space is is that eventually, you know, bosses and managers are going to want people back in the office because Unless you've worked for me for five years and I know your your work product and and how honest you are and hardworking you are, uh, I'm, I'm going to want to have some oversight of what you're doing throughout the day. All right. So um, this is just, again, my own uneducated guess on on the office market. Uh, I, I just can't I can't see people being willing to allow people to work remotely permanently unless they have a really good feel for that person's character and uh, quality of work. On the retail front, uh, retail, it's funny. Uh, you know, I've been in retail real estate since 2005, and um, it's constantly evolving. We, you don't realize that it is just because it's, it's part of our everyday life. But if you, if you go back and you think of how big a grocery store was when you were five, 
versus what a store looked like when you were 15 versus what it looked like when you were 20. Like the, it, it, it's always changing. The, the types of services, the types of products, I would say things like online shopping uh, is, is mostly tied to probably toiletries, fashion, shoes, but there's, there'll always be a need for services, right? So the four tenants that we have today, one is a taqueria, one is a convenience store, one is a hair salon, and, and the fourth is a used furniture store. So, you know, I would say maybe the used furniture store uh, isn't internet resistant, but the the people that are shopping in in that furniture store they're not they're not people that'll go online and purchase furniture. I think we feel pretty confident that these tenants are willing to stay in our shopping center, and and we're also pretty confident just based on our knowledge of the submarket and what other people are getting for rents that people the, these these people are paying significantly below market. You know, probably there's at least an half. There's an important aspect of investing that people don't think about. Your ability to communicate with tenants and prospective tenants and how important that is to your return. That's an aspect of it that we haven't brought up yet. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, um, all of my experience to date has been tied to uh, negotiating transactions more at the asset level rather than speaking individually to tenants, negotiating leases. I come from the world of buying and selling real estate. So I have less experience in that than my two partners. Uh, both of them own shopping centers, the small shopping center owners, whereas I was in an institutional environment. So one of the guys is, is, a, is a broker. Like that's where you got to start leasing and selling assets um, as a real estate broker. And so he is going to be the driving force for us on the lease negotiations. Uh, I spent a year doing asset management, uh, during the downturn 2009 to 2010, uh, with joint venture partners. So I have a little bit of experience, uh, where I was overseeing the people doing the day-to-day work, the property managers, the leasing team, but I don't personally have that experience. So I, I hope to, get a little bit of that, but that's not going to be my main uh, focus. It's going to be looking for additional opportunities. In modern society, the downside risk of any entrepreneurial venture is just not that big. And so I hope what listeners get from this is a little impetus to take more action and take more risk. People will forgive your failures as long as you're honest and you gave it the old college try with integrity. People will forgive you. Just one of the things I'm curious about is with you taking all this risk, did you feel like you had to do a sales job at home? Because your wife is Dr. Kate. I mean, she probably has no interest in investing at all, right? Yeah. Yeah, sure. She, um, she's risk averse. Absolutely. You know, uh, it seems like I don't have, I would say in, in all the investing I've ever done in my life, I've, I've only had regrets about not putting in more money. I remember in 2000, late 2008 or early 2009, we, we had no money. Right. And, uh, I think we had maybe, $25,000 liquid cash, right? 
right? We, we just bought our first home. We were too focused on paying off student loans uh, to actually put put money aside. And I remember the 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 market the the Dow got down to sixty five hundred. I said, "Hey, now's time. Let's let's put money in." And so we went and got mutual funds. And I wanted to put in I've, I want to say fifteen thousand dollars, which <laughs> would probably would have been done dumb just given our liquid position, right? Uh, I remember this. And so she's like, let's do eight. And I said, how about 12? She said, let's do eight. And we, we put $8,000 in. And that, that mutual fund, we, we still have it today. And I, I get the statement from time to time. And it's, I, I want to say the last statement I got said it was $37,000, right? <laughs> and it's, so four times your money over, call it 12 years, is, is a great return, right? But you sit there and you go, oh, you know, hey, what if we put, double that you know what would that look like right and i just uh it's funny when you're young like that it's hard to take those sort of risks when you're a little bit older and your earnings potential is higher you know you you weren't dealing with the type of crash that we had 08 09 hindsight's 2020 and at the same time we're in a lot more comfortable position financially than than we were then one time i had a a capital call on uh, an investment opportunity so a capital call, uh, a lot of times when you when you invest, especially in higher risk risk assets, startups, uh, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll they'll be running low on cash and they'll ask the existing investors to put up additional funds uh, for an investment. Let's say you put in twenty thousand dollars into an opportunity. Let's call it a software company, high risk, right? And and uh, they'll come to you and they'll say, hey, you own three percent of the software company for your $20,000. We're, we're calling, we need $10,000 from Brad D'Antonio along with every other investor and your proportionate share based on your, your ownership, uh, your percentage ownership. And, and so the, uh, the biggest regret I've had is having one, one capital call for a software company where I was diluted from 3% to 2%. And, you know, I personally believe the valuation of that company is 20 times my my investment, right? I didn't put in a lot of money, but I I certainly had the cash to to invest in that capital call, but I didn't I I invested because uh it was a close friend of mine that asked it. I was busy at work at the time. I didn't understand the company, even what it did. It was just a small amount. I said Hey, is it a good investment? He said, yes. So I, I threw money in, right? And then that capital call came around the same time as I got the opportunity for the, the uh, non-medical staffing company uh, fund, right? And, and so I said, I'd rather throw that $10,000 into, in additional $10,000 into this fund rather than, you know, throwing good money after bad. And, uh, you know, that company... Uh, I think is worth 20 times my initial investment now. And, and obviously that rarely happens, right? Uh, but it, it was one of those deals where I, I could have afforded to, to put in that additional money and I didn't. And now I'm kicking myself every time I, I get a email that, that shows the quarterly profits and loss of that, that software company. I think guys like you and me, and hopefully this doesn't come off conceited, 
But I think we underestimate how much we know and maybe underestimate our good judgment. Because based on what you're telling me, I recognize that in myself. And maybe it's because we're such good buddies and we were that's probably because we have a lot in common. We see a bit of a reflection in ourselves and the other person. But if you've done your due diligence and you're someone who studies your environment and you're observant, which we are, we're perceptive, we should probably put more faith in our decision making. I'll give you a little example. Remember when I first started traveling the world and I said to you, I'm going to invest in Netflix because, and I gave you reason X, Y, and Z. And I didn't put a shit ton of money in, but the money that I did put in has quadrupled and I had the perfect hypothesis in hindsight. Warren Buffett yeah. talks about how you don't necessarily need to diversify. Just find something you really like. Concentrate your capital in those that you really like. Mm-hmm. And you should do fine as long as you've done your due diligence. But for whatever reason, maybe it's this emphasis on diversification that we've learned all our lives. I think you and I, maybe with the exception of visiting angels, tend to put less money in things that we really believe in and end up regretting it later. Is it is it a lack of faith in ourselves? Well, I think I think it's it's all tied to risk tolerance and and where people perceive risk, right? Like uh, you, I remember our conversation about Netflix. You know, I I've thought all along that Netflix should have should have expanded internationally. And it was a conversation you and I had. the The thing is, from a stock market perspective, I, you know, I worked at a brokerage house when I was in college, um, and so I. My, I, it actually turned me off from investing in individual stocks just because you, you have no control, right? You know, (laughs) you, it's not like you're, you're on the board, right? And, and then day-to-day swings or volatility, um, we, we can't control. And, and, and I guess you could put stop losses, but I, Warren Buffett sits around all day in in reviews, PLs, balance sheets, cash flow statement. You know, that that's what he's doing. That's what he's passionate about. That's not what I'm passionate about. And and so, you know, the theory that at all times all information is baked into the market for stocks, you know, that theory I, I obviously don't truly believe that, but I'm not intelligent enough to decide when that that potential growth or or risk is there in an asset, and I don't I don't want to spend time thinking about that. I remember us talking about it, and I, I I remember the opportunity for that revenue growth being there. But how much of that's already baked into the existing price of Netflix? I don't know. Or yeah, I didn't know. Nobody knows. Correct. Active managers we know underperform the market. So nobody knows, but investing involves risk. It always does. But when you have a pretty strong thesis, it just seems to me that we're not making big enough bets when we believe in something. Yeah, but it's even today, right? So um, I put a bunch of money, you know, I, I left work. I wasn't getting a consistent paycheck after February. The market uh, obviously corrected based on COVID. 
And I thought it was a really good opportunity to invest in, in the market. So I had a lot of an unusual amount of capital set aside to to fund our living if I needed it while I went out and started pursuing these these other opportunities. So for the first time, I actually did individual stocks, but I called a, a friend and and asked him, what, here's some money, <laughs> do what you think is best. So he came up with the strategy and, and uh, you know, we invested in five or six stocks and they were all tech-based. And I... I've never been a believer in tech because look at the PE ratios, right? I mean, I just, it's something that I can't wrap my head around, but I put my faith in him. You know, he's done phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's up 60%. Uh, I, I have no plans to pick my own stocks. I just, I don't think that that's a good use of my time or my knowledge, right? It's funny. You talk about not being on the board at Netflix they have a rule where you can't make eye contact with a coworker for more than a few seconds. They're very progressive in that way. Progressive. That yeah, does, that that's sounds, what they call it. Quote sounds unquote, fascist. <laughs> yeah. Well, up is down nowadays. You know that. I like what you said about not expending mental energy in an area where you're not passionate because compound interest being what it is and because it impacts so many different aspects of life it's not just your money it's your relationships it's reading it's clean eating it's exercise you get compounding benefits from so many aspects of life that the sooner you can figure out where you want to invest like your wife for example as soon as you find the one you want to go all in on that so that you get compounding benefits. So you wouldn't want to spread yourself so thin where you're making decisions on individual stocks, knowing that your time is better spent helping me invest in commercial real estate. So I like what you're saying there because I think it's going to lead to a more fulfilling life if you take all of your time and energy and devote it to something where you can concentrate, where you're willing to concentrate because compound interest is so powerful. Does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. How long were you married before you had your first child? Eight or nine years. Were you thinking about not having kids at one point? Yeah. So, you know, obviously we, we got married when we were, I was 25. She was, had just turned 24. So we were young. We didn't know what the hell we wanted Right. Um, well, we, we knew that we wanted children and then, you know, we both had incomes, you know, nice incomes. We, you know, lived a comfortable lifestyle where we, you know, we weren't extra, we're not extravagant spenders at the same time. We didn't have to think about what we were spending and we were still able to save money. Right. So, so it was a wonderful luxury to have. I, you know, my work-life balance was great. You know, I went into the office around eight, left around five. Got to go play pickup soccer or, you know, go hang out with buddies and have beers in the evenings. My wife worked, worked a um, much more strenuous job. Uh, you know, her, even today, she's probably a 60 to 80 hour work, uh, week, work week. I had the luxury of kind of being single, but at the same time being married, if that makes sense. You know, I, I didn't have a lot of personal obligations uh, or family obligations. And I, I really liked that sort of selfish lifestyle. And so when my wife told me that she was ready to start having kids, I was like, ah, 
life's good. Let's let's not rock the boat. So, um, but obviously, wouldn't change it for anything. Once you have them, it's 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 your life's miserable but amazing at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have many many more highs than I do, but many more lows also. Yeah, and I don't uh, I don't want it uh, to. There's no right or wrong way to live your life, right? But I feel there's a lot more purpose in my life because I have responsibilities. My my life before children was, was very shallow. And I don't mean that in a negative way because I think I would have been happy having never had children. The things that are important to people that don't have children, you realize how meaningless the, those things are. To you, but what about to them? Right. Well, it's perspective, right? There's no right or wrong way to live your life. But what some people may feel is material, their their pers- perspective can kind of be out of whack because they don't they don't have the knowledge of caring for someone, if that makes sense. I see. So there's a lot more love in your life. Uh, caring when I say caring, I mean the responsibility being responsible for someone, not not emotionally caring, but having real responsibilities. Yeah, there's meaning in responsibility. I think that's where we derive meaning from. I think Jordan Peterson preaches this, that clean your room before you try to save the world. In other words, take care of your own. I mean, you can, it, I think it makes sense both literally and metaphorically. I see a lot of parallels between your life and mine in that my wife and I were very happy before we decided to conceive. I could see us traveling another 12 years. She's a lot younger than me, so we could have waited a long time. I think COVID accelerated the process, and in a weird way, I almost feel like God was the impetus for our decision. Like, this intervention of COVID kept us from doing what we love, and perhaps shifted us from something that was more superficial, which is travel and our own personal enjoyment, to now we're going to have different priorities in raising our child. Isn't it interesting how a child is basically replicating yourself and then it becomes a focal point? Like, why why is that so fulfilling that you create another one of you and your wife and then devote all this time to what you and her have created and that is held up as the most ideal life as the most important thing you could do is be a great father when looked at from like the ultra logical perspective that's what it is like take out all the emotion and the meaning you you're left with two people that replicated themselves and then now it becomes the most important thing to them and then that person then does that same thing Mm -hmm. like before we were married we volunteered in different poverty-stricken parts of the world and devoted our time and resources to helping those less fortunate kids now we're going to make our own kid who's not going to be 
as underprivileged as them, and we're going to help our own kid come up in the world and teach them what we know so that they can have their own impact on the world. It's just so, it's so interesting to look at it from this perspective where it's like, oh, you, you created another one of yourself. And in a lot of people think less of those who didn't replicate themselves. And why is that? Like, like why do people care if other people replicate themselves or not? If they reproduce, I mean, there's so much emotion to it. I mean, just the beauty of a baby is something to behold, and it's scary. Yeah, I imagine you're gonna you're gonna be frightened. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine like gripping the wheel real tight on the way home from the hospital with our first kid. the The second one's easy. I mean, it's in terms of understanding what you should expect. Uh, the our first daughter when she was born i i was shocked you know the next day that they just let us walk out of the hospital with her and it sounds so silly well it's cliche too i hear a lot of people say that but i just thought what the fuck you guys are going to just let us leave with this this thing like you know the only thing they did there was no like instructions there was like it was like hey oh okay you got a car seat it's fastened in Okay, you can go. You're like, whoa, 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 hold on. Wait. How about the way it's created? Like, is there anything that is more unthinking? I mean, not from our perspective, but other people in the world, and especially in like poverty stricken areas where they shouldn't be having a kid, the most unthinking, the, the least amount of thinking you've done in the last 72 hours happens to create this amazing creation. How is there no requirement for creating this? This yeah. being that yeah. you can then take home from the hospital. <laughs> it's also incredible. Yeah, it's pretty pretty shocking. What are your thoughts on God as it yeah. pertains to the creation of new life? Uh, I don't I don't really have an opinion on it. You and I started having these discussions a long time ago in your backyard. We were probably 15, 16. I'll bet you the nature of our conversations were very similar to, to what we're having today. Do you save for Annie and Libby's college, your daughters? Yeah, I do. Um, so I started one for Annie um, probably, if I had to guess, two years ago. She's six. So we kind of late started that. Uh, just everything I do is late, you know. So we are putting in more for that than we probably need to uh, just to kind of catch up. That's a 529 plan, by the way. It's uh, what we're, we're doing. We're putting away on a monthly basis just – automatic draft from our bank account. Uh, we'll probably do one for Libby as well, but I think we're putting enough away in Annie's to probably cover both of them. And are you confident that money will be spent for college? Do you think college will still be around in its present form? Yeah, I think traditional college experience will will always exist. I've always been a big proponent of Rather than general studies, you know, straight out of high school, I, I always felt like major corporations should create their own universities in present day. So my, my thinking along this, these lines started 20 years ago. Like present day, you know, Google, I'd, I'd highly recommend that they go and get a thousand people a year um, and run them through some sort of program for four years 
and so they could build exactly what they're looking for from a human capital perspective. Something definitely needs to change as these costs of tuition accelerate and the value of college is diminishing overall, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think that I, I've read a little bit over like probably the last 12 to 24 months that you are seeing a pullback in the number of applicants at schools, even prestigious universities. It seems like they started charging more and the facilities got so much nicer. <laughs> like they're staying in five-star hotels, which are dorms now, like yeah. on A&M's campus. Yeah, and it's it's an arms race. Uh, it was an arms race to be on the, you know, you, you want to be a tier one university. Well, if, you know, 150 schools are striving to be considered a top 50 university, who can outspend who to be considered the prestigious research university rather than teaching kids? You have grad students teaching, grad students teaching kids while the actual professor is spitting out papers that aren't achieving the goal that you're ultimately supposed to provide to your students, right? Which is um, an education. You know, instead you're having, you know, the 26 year old grad student, you know, doing the work of the prestigious professor, which gives the university the ranking that they have. Well, I like that you have ideas because something needs to change. There needs to be more skin in the game on the part of universities. Like, mm -hmm. Well, how come I didn't get any services to help to place me in a job post-college? Why wouldn't they, if they're really interested in helping you, other than giving you a piece of paper, why wouldn't they then help you beyond? Kisha and I talked about this on the podcast about how, why, why aren't we taught in school if school prepares you for the rest of your life? Why wouldn't they talk about how to create a successful relationship. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. I've always said that I wish I could go back and explain a few things to, to the me that was a sophomore or junior in college. I was never a good student in high school or college. Um, you know, it just wasn't a focus for me. I was more interested in being social or passionate about the industries that I liked rather than attending a a management class or a marketing class. It, it just, none of it felt like it was preparing me for something out, out after school, except for finance classes, which is what I got my degree in. I would love to be able to go back to, you know, my alma mater and just say, Hey, look, guys, these five things are very important. Does that make sense to you? Like, of what, course, what my you, degree is in marketing. Yeah. You know how obsolete what I learned in college is now? Right. Yeah. And if you were teaching how to do Facebook ads, because social media marketing is half of marketing nowadays, that could be obsolete in two to three years. So much of what we learn in college is lagging by five, 10, 15 years. Right. Of course, I one of the reasons I wrote advice to 20-year-old me on my 40th birthday is because it gives me an opportunity to chat with 20-year-old me and say, hey, dude, this is what's important. Don't worry about any of this other stuff. Right. But that's the paradox of life, right? You're too soon old, too late smart. That's yeah. how it works. And yeah. in the professional world, once I got into the real world after college, realized where I went wrong and tried to correct for those mistakes in my 20s like tried to preempt mistakes by 
trying to learn the best of what other people had figured out already and incorporating it into my life so that when I was in my 30s, I wasn't saying if I knew then what I know now. And so even now, as I'm about to embark on being a father in January, I'm trying to pick the brains of you and Chase Mm -hmm. and all you guys to figure out, you know, I don't want to make the mistakes and have regrets in my 50s. Like, I hate when I hear people say, well, that really puts things in perspective. Like, how did you not consider (laughs) that you might say that someday and make adjustments for that someday happening? So, yeah. Prepare for a crisis before it comes sort of thinking. Sure. Yeah. So give me an example. Like, what... What would you tell someone that was at Nichols State, you know, baseball player at Nichols right now that's 21 and a year away from finishing school? What advice would you give them? What would you say, hey, learn this from my experience? Figure out how you best learn. Focus on fundamentals. Read as much as you can because all knowledge leads to more knowledge. The more you know, the more you can know. You want to do some fun questions? Sure. Social media, net negative or net positive for society? Um, I might be biased because I'm not on social media, but I think it's a terrible thing. Do you know that you're the person responsible for convincing me to get on Facebook? Really? Yep. Oh, interesting. You told me someday my kids and my kids' kids are really going to appreciate that I kept a log of my life and mm. they make it easy for you. I, I read an article on that and felt compelled to go do it. And I didn't get around to it. You know, who knows if Facebook's going to be around when our, when our grandchildren are here. I personally hope not, but uh, I don't do a good enough job. I don't, I don't like being in pictures. You know, I, I, I love taking pictures of my family uh, or beautiful scenery or, you know, uh, I use my iPhone just like everyone else. I just uh, don't feel compelled to go share that with, you know, 500 of my not closest friends. How do you think your life would be different if you had been on social media? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> my wife and I love to travel. Um And so what I found a lot after sort of the social media explosion was felt like we would go to these amazing places and enjoy a a fun experience. But all anyone was doing was getting on their phone, taking pictures, and then just sort of bragging to their, their friends and family about where they are rather than enjoying the moment. Nothing. It's not real annoying, but it's, it's something that I, kind of bothers me a little bit where I'll meet a friend for lunch and, uh, you know, we'll have been, let's just say we've gone to the hill country or something like that. And they'll say, Oh, you know, I, I saw that you guys had a good time and in Wimberley. And, and for me, it's like, I didn't tell you I was in Wimberley. Mm-hmm. You know, I probably would have shared that at lunch, but it bothers me that you know what's going on in my life when I haven't shared it with you. If that makes sense. Again, it's not it's not something that bothers me to the point where I'm irritated and I'll say to my wife, "Hey, <laughs> quit sharing our lives with people." Like I'd rather do that in person or on a phone call or on a text message rather than 
500 people that I don't keep in touch with know exactly what's going on in my life. When's the first time you logged onto the internet? What'd you do? I have no idea, honestly. Uh, so I remember doing dial up as a kid and saying, this internet thing is never going to take off. This is, this is terrible. Like this is, this thing is not going to make it. <laughs> uh, and I, you know what? I wouldn't, if they wouldn't have improved the speed of it and having occupied landlines, um, I, I bet you it would have, it wouldn't have taken off, you know? Um, but that the technology proved me very wrong. What's the greatest joy of being the father of girls? There's two things that, that I like. I know that when my girls are teenagers, they're going to hate my wife, not me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the second is knowing that I'll never have to coach Little League baseball, soccer, or football and deal with the dynamics of the politics because when you're a kid especially as a boy like we were we played competitive sports as children you know winning was extremely important to us and and i remember as a kid being frustrated that my dad would just kind of sit to the side and not yell at the referee or you know you know um getting confrontations with an umpire you know and and other dads were passionate enough to to care, and n- now that I'm 40, I'm very relieved that my dad wasn't that guy, or or the one that insisted on me playing shortstop. I, I'm just relieved that I don't have to deal with any of that. Good answer. Mm-hmm. If somebody dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? In in real estate, commercial real estate. Yeah, all in, of it. Income producing. I target like a eight ten eight to ten percent cash on cash uh, investment opportunity that I consider to be relatively safe. One investment with the entire million. You're gonna have to. I mean, so you know that's a four million dollar property, uh, give or take three three and a half to four million dollars. I wouldn't diversify that. I'd do it in one asset where I knew or I felt really comfortable that I can I can get those sort of yields. In what city? Probably here, Houston, locally. If somebody gave you $100,000 and forced you to invest in three companies, Apple, Amazon, and ExxonMobil, how would you allocate the (laughs) $100,000? I don't know what Exxon's dividend is today, but I heard that it crept back up to almost 11%. So I I would be really tempted. I'm a passive income guy. I'd be really tempted to to put it all in Exxon and then buy more on margin. Exxon is at about $32 a share at its lowest level since March 24th. It's down 50% year to date. Their market cap in October 2007 was over $519 billion, now down to $140 billion. It's a it's a 73% decline. If you're buying the, the stock at an 11 dividend yield. If the dividend yield goes to six, you're still okay, right? I mean, it, it's so it's it just seems like a, a good opportunity um, right now. And if I invest in individual stocks, I'd, I'd be more interested in that than, than companies that don't make any money. 
So mm-hmm. how would you allocate the 100000 Just a bad person asked the question too. <laughs> but if you're forced, 100000 And it's not my own money? Well, somebody gives it to you and they force you to invest it in Apple, Amazon, and Exxon Mobile. They've given it to me. Yeah. Yeah, then I, I put it all in Exxon. Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, I would get $10,000 a year in mailbox money. Wow. Yeah, but that's $100,000 that you don't need right now. I mean, you could be risky with it. Yeah, but it it it's all it all adds up. That's got, what I'm looking for. I want to get I've got I've got a few like throwaways. I want to get yeah. an idea of how you think. So yeah. that's a good answer. I've already got a few throwaways. I I wouldn't mind almost $1,000 a month in in income from that. Okay, so same dollar amount, a hundred thousand, but you're forced to allocate it toward gold or Bitcoin. All in gold. Interesting. Yeah, um, I think that the government's just printing money right now, and so um, I think inflation is going to be a real problem for us in the future. What percentage chance do you think Trump has of being reelected? We're recording on Saturday, October third, twenty twenty. Before the presidential debate, I would have said he, he, he'd be reelected. Um, after the debate, I, I'm leaning more towards Biden. So I'd call, I'd call Trump's chances uh, 40% probably. Where do you think he went wrong in the debate primarily? Or what screwed him, I should say, from an objective observer? I would say that uh, one of the big concerns probably for a lot of undecided voters was uh, the cognitive capacity of Biden. And I, I thought he, he did better. He did better than I, and probably most people expected that had some question marks surrounding that during that debate. One, it was, it was almost unwatchable. Uh, All of them, right. Uh, Even the moderator, uh, he did the best that he could, but it was it was really tough to watch, and I don't think I'll watch another one if they have them. Well, I should say I didn't like how they talked over each other. That's always annoying. If you and I were to do the crosstalk thing now, what are you talking about, Brad? Yeah, that, well, well I, we're still not do doing it, it even I, when we try to do it. It's so <laughs> annoying. But why either of them would think that that's a winning strategy is beyond me, unless they're trying to bully the other, thinking that their base will get fired up. It was interesting that Biden decided at one point to face the camera and talk to the American people at home or whatever. And as phony or as as genuine as you might think that would be. It still showed a level of self-awareness to be mindful that it's not about us, like it's about those that we serve as public servants. The issue that bothered me about Trump is that he's been anti-media effectively and where he was given a softball about the fine people on both sides, he not only didn't knock it out of the park, he didn't even swing at it, which I don't understand because Chris Wallace had just asked the question of Biden about how he was motivated to get into the race in 2020, whereas he didn't in 2016. He was motivated by this idea that Trump said that there were fine people on both sides. That, of course, was an edited video. He tried to qualify his statement by saying, 
but not the not their neo-Nazis and white supremacists. I condemn them totally. That was, of course, cut off. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and the media just replays it. And that's how propaganda works, right? The more you say something, the more true it becomes. But he could have easily taken that opportunity to say, wait a minute, that's the focal point of your campaign. It's that's actually not true. This is what I said. I don't know why he didn't do that. But I guess he's just tired of hearing questions about race and maybe was just beat down over time. Who knows? Yeah. You know, I don't really like to share my opinions uh, on politics with people that aren't aren't close friends. The thing that has me really sad, and I, I blame the media and social media for this, is they're, they're fostering and trying to create division. Whether it's uh, what's viewed as a left-leaning or right-leaning leaning media source, um, they're all trying to incite anger uh, for profit, right? And I, I'm a capitalist, so <laughs> don't take it the wrong way. But I don't... It's like someone close to me is a Democrat, and the person was devastated when Trump won the election four years ago. And, you know, I asked asked this person that the night that it happened, I kind of chuckled, I, and I don't I don't vote, but I, I chuckled. It was in, I thought it was interesting. Um, I wasn't particularly fond of Hillary Clinton. But the, the public backlash of Donald Trump being elected, I found humorous because there was all this anger from s- certain sections of the population. But who wins the presidency in the United States? The impact that that has on your life, I, I believe, is pretty minimal con- considering the anger and that that elicits, right? So, you know, ask yourself if, if you, if you voted for Hillary Clinton four years ago, you know, is what is your life like today versus four years ago? And how did that impact you? And I, I would be shocked if more than call it five in a hundred people feel that the, the presidency impacted them in a negative light, if they're being honest with themselves. Right. And the same with uh, Joe Biden, if he, if if he defeats Trump this time, right? You know, I know in my industry there there there's potential impacts uh, from a tax perspective in real estate, in uh, a tax code called the 1031 exchange, which um, basically allows someone to roll gains from one investment opportunity into another and defer their gains um, over a period of time. It's a wonderful wealth creator. Um, and if, if he's elected is, is able to amend the tax code to prohibit 1031 exchanges, it's going to impact a lot of people within my industry. But I think long, I'm, I'm hoping that that is just rhetoric to pander to his base in terms of attacking, you know, the tax code and what, what he deems loopholes. So there, there is uh, potential ramifications uh, for that happening, and and if and if that does happen, you hope that the the commercial real estate lobby is is strong enough to to allow him to to keep that that piece in the tax code. I would say that that's the only real concern that I have, and I don't believe that it will change my industry as a whole, but it's it's something that that could 
limit transactions to an extent. The only policy that I felt like really impacted me in my life from a presidential perspective was Obamacare Hmm. because of the rate at which I saw my premiums increase. It happened to be at a time when I was exiting the workplace and had a really tough time getting health care in my position. And so for that reason, that would have been enough to vote against Obama because of how that affected me personally. However, there's always the debate between whether or not you should vote for your own self-interest, which is more rational, versus voting for the good of the country. And I think whether or not you're in a position to vote for the good of the country depends a lot on how much personal success you've had or how much wealth you've been born into or whatever your status might be. You're afforded the luxury of being able to vote for the interests of everyone rather than your own self-interest. Obviously, I would have had other factors to consider uh, for voting for president. Yeah, but I I would... The... The problem I have with that sort of theory is it I bet you if we polled, you know, a hundred people and I bet you ninety-six percent of them, ninety-six out of the hundred, would say that there was no material impact in their lives if they're honest. So if you are trying to vote for the greater interest, you know, and the community as a whole, if only four in a hundred and I'm Again, I'm talking out of my ass, right? But we're thinking out loud, right? So, I, I just—it's hard to imagine emotion tied to it isn't consistent with the impact, right? So, people, people, they have bad days because of who is elected as president, you know, and and it will impact their lives. At, at such a smaller level than than they they think, and it's all, I believe it's all tied to media. I agree. It is the media driving the division. Chris Wallace has an employer, and he has to put food on the table and pay his own mortgage, and his employer benefits from division. And if he's being honest and saying that he came up with the questions himself. You wouldn't then ask the question about critical race theory unless you have an agenda. You wouldn't call it racial sensitivity training. That's sort of ridiculous. But at the same time, he also knows that the fine people hoax, as conservatives call it, is a question that's inserted into the debate to foster division. I don't think most people have the ability to think that far. Well, first of all, most people don't know that the the fine people on both sides is a hoax. I mean, it's a media-generated hoax, but but the media is an arm of the Democrat side of our aisle. And so many of the points that Biden brought up, like accusing Trump of calling the troops suckers and losers, that was something that was sourced from four unnamed sources. And if it fits the caricature of what you already believe, then you're going to run with it. I think the media had to go to more opinion when information and news became instantaneous, like on Twitter. 
how do you keep up with that? Well, mm -hmm. if you want to remain in business, you've got to go to clicks and you've got to go to sensationalism. That's what's going to get the clicks. Yep. Fostering It gets emotion. me sometimes. I think, damn it, why it, did I, why did I click us. on this? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's the business nowadays is creating the headlines that gets you to click on the article. Yeah, they, they Chris pander. Wallace is aware of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like uh, back when I would watch the news, you know, particularly in college, I remember specifically wanting, and I was obviously, I've learned a lot since we were 20 years old, but I remember I always wanted to watch like Gulf War and Afghanistan news updates on Fox News because that was much more catered towards propaganda for the u.s army like i wanted to hear the good news not the bad news right as a as a kid and today i feel like i i don't feel like i could trust any news source does that make sense true like, but it's been that way for a, lo a long time people just didn't realize it because generally maybe it, it took me until i was in my 30s to realize that well, it confirmed their pre-existing opinions. So people didn't know that CNN was biased until Trump came along. And the reason is because no. CNN was news for so long prior to the Internet that they didn't realize the popularization of social media. And mm -hmm. if you already agreed with Barack Obama's policies, then you didn't see any bias at all. It just confirmed what you already believed. Right. And people are, call them lazy, call them lack of curiosity they're not going to search for opinions that would disconfirm what they already believe they're just going to believe what they're fed not only by those who confirm their pre-existing opinions and beliefs but they're going to believe what's said about the other side unfortunately right so when you have a conversation with some with a with an uber leftist you already know what they think they don't need to feed it to you, you because you know which information they consume and it's been proven out by Jonathan Haidt and others that people who are conservative tend to know both sides, whereas leftists don't do as well in knowing both sides. Do you have, I'd, I'd be curious your thoughts on this. So I, I, I can't take credit for this and I, I can't even give credit to a source because uh, I can't remember which of my friends said this, but you know, one of the biggest problems with the United States and its politics today is that we're an enormous country covering a tremendous amount of land. People on the West Coast and the East Coast have way different views than people in the middle of the country, right? And we're supposed to have aligned interests, right? How the culture and lifestyle of someone in Miami, Florida, is way different than the culture and lifestyle of Seattle, Washington, or Omaha, Nebraska, and Manhattan. It's hard to imagine that we have we have to have a government that governs for both, right? It's almost are we too big of a country to to have a sustainable government? Well, three hundred and thirty million people is a lot of people. Oh, but it's not just that. It's also landmass and, and cultures. I mean, you know, Louisiana culturally is different than Texas. It's and, like a different country. Right. And, and I mean, it's a five hour drive to Baton Rouge or New Orleans from here. What is New Orleans to, you know, Salt Lake City, Utah? It's a great point. 
and and we're supposed to elect one official to to have veto power over every every bill that gets passed but it doesn't need to be as contentious as it is it doesn't but our media having bias is it feeds all of that people are busy with their lives they're only getting small snippets and if they happen to walk into the room when Anderson Cooper is talking, people didn't know that everybody on the CNN panel voted for Barack Obama. The problem was they presented themselves as being objective. If you were watching a news channel and you knew everyone up there voted for Donald Trump, you would see it entirely different. Mm-hmm. Down the line, Anderson Cooper, Don Lemon. Now, while it's obvious now, you didn't know in 2012, all these guys are voting for, for Obama, not Romney. So if that's the case, you can't present yourself as objective because then you're going to come off as phony. And that was a lot of the backlash in 2016. So uh, it's funny that this has come up because I literally just had a conversation with a friend yesterday. His older sister, who's our our age, yours and my age, she was a lobbyist in in D.C. right out of college. Um, And by the time she was about 30 years old, you know, we were 30 you know, not that long ago, we weren't very bright and we're still not today, but, uh, but we certainly didn't have the, the mindset that, um, we could go on national television and relay our thoughts to the public as though, um, what we're saying is meaningful and impactful or, or correct. Right. And his sister at about the age of 30, uh, was, someone that they would bring on to Fox news from time to time, uh, and have sort of a liberal slant on, on things. So, you know, I, I never saw her speak. I've, I've speak, I've seen her speak one time. It was at a funeral. Um, but, um, you know, the, I asked him once when he told me that his sister would sometimes appear on, on Fox news for a, a wide variety of topics um, I said, well, what makes her qualified for that? And he said, absolutely nothing. And I laughed and he goes, no, I'm serious. When we listen to someone on television, we think that if they're hired by a cable news source, we assume that there's some val- validity to their credentials, right? And, and here I have someone that's telling me his sister shouldn't be speaking on the variety of topics that, that she's, she's asked to speak on. Um, so there's, there's this amount of authority or there, at least there used to be, uh, or credit given to these sources on television that are speaking as experts, uh, when all, all they're really doing is promoting their consulting service or, uh, you know, it's, it's almost, it's a, a marketing opportunity for these people. I could see that. It's been said that The Economist is filled with acne-faced teenagers and 20-somethings that if you knew who actually wrote those articles, you wouldn't read them. <laughs> Do you have a favorite book? Uh, I enjoy reading books. Nowadays, I use a Libby app, and I'll, I'll listen to books when I, when I go for a walk in my neighborhood. I really enjoyed, and this was before the show Narcos came out, there was a book written by a guy named Mark Bowden, who is... A uh, he wrote Black Hawk Down. He wrote a book on killing called Killing Pablo. It was about Pablo Escobar, and that was probably twenty years ago. 
It was a fascinating book. The the show Narcos uh, that takes place, you know, in Colombia. I think there's two versions: one in Mexico and one in Colombia uh, on Netflix. <clears throat> Uh, it it stayed pretty true to this this book, Killing Pablo. Uh, it, was, it was pretty fascinating to watch that show, having read that book probably 15 years ago. That was a great book, and I, I like to recommend that to people because I, I like um, historical books that are nonfiction, right, uh, that talk about a specific event, or specific person. I, I really enjoy those. The City of Thieves is very good if you're into historical fiction. I enjoy those too. I'm fascinated by people's real life stories, right? Yeah. Interesting ones, right? Yeah. So th- those are the types of books that I typically like to read. And then I've, not as much now that I have children, but probably like, I, I-, I like to go back and read classic, classic novels from different eras. So like the one that I've read most recently that I really enjoyed was called Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, uh, which is another Russian based, it was written in the 1850s. And it's, it's, very has a lot of philosophical themes to the book, which I found fascinating, especially considering the guy's been dead probably 130 years. That was a book that I I, I would really recommend to people. Brothers Karamazov by the same author is is like considered one of the greatest books ever written. That one's recommended by a lot of people I follow on Twitter. Really? Yeah. yeah. So I, I own the book. I bought it for maybe $5 from Barnes & Noble. Uh, they have like a classic book section uh, that that they try and offload these things on, and uh, so I probably have twenty books that I haven't read yet. As an American, it's not easy to go to Russia. I've looked into it a little bit. Like if you take a a cruise from Scandinavia mm-hmm. over to the Saint Nordic, Peters, the Saint Nordic Petersburg, cruise, yeah, yeah, you can get like a three day visa. Mm-hmm. But even if you can't go to Russia, I highly recommend going to Eastern Europe just to witness what life was like behind the Iron Curtain under communism. I can't recommend highly enough going to Eastern Europe before it becomes westernized, assuming that it will. So I haven't been to Prague since 2002, right? So I, I cannot imagine, you know, everyone I know, is, not everyone I know, but it seems like anyone that's going to go to Eastern Europe now goes to Prague. You must go to Prague. Right. It is a fairy tale city, well preserved. But is it uh, is it too touristy now? Like that that would be my biggest fear. Well, consider that when we were kids and our parents were our age, you couldn't go to Prague. Mm. It was shut off to the West. So, because of its fairy tale nature, it's going to attract a lot of tourists, especially in the summer. You'll get a million people in the old town. Right. But any chance you get to go there, you must go. The people are so different in that the older people don't speak English. That's not going to always be the case. They treat you differently. They don't make eye contact. There are these cultural things that I think are a residual effect of having lived through communism and hearing stories from their parents and grandparents of having to keep to yourself of being conquered throughout history by foreigners, you know, all these little things that (laughs) makes them stick together. There is no feminism in Prague that I've witnessed. So the women still have 
a respect for men that you don't see, generally speaking, in the West. They dress really, really well. You'll, you gotta experience it for it's, yourself because it's hard to describe. You'll see like a cute twenty-two-year-old scrubbing windows in the subway. Like, where else in the world are you gonna see that? Yeah, a little um, blonde-haired, blue-eyed window scrubber. It's it's so funny you're saying this because my experience in Prague in 2002 was completely different than yours. The moment we got off the train, we were talking to an old woman in English. She said she had lived in Oklahoma <laughs> and she was dressed like an old bag lady. And she asked us for a dollar. <laughs> and while we were talking to communicating with her, uh, some soldiers were throwing coins at us <laughs> and hitting us. <laughs> It's interesting you, t- you talk about people not being able to speak English there. Uh, you know, we're, we're accustomed to that now, right? Whereas 20 years ago, maybe it was, it was less prevalent, especially in Eastern Europe. But when I went, I went with a native German speaker. Several people, we, a lot of times, he communicated in German because people there weren't, weren't fluent in English, which is, uh, pr- I suspect, a lot different today. Younger people are taught English in school. Many of them study tourism. Czech Republic borders Germany to the east. You know, Europe, it's so fast to get to the next country. You just take a train for 90 minutes and you're in another country Mm. that speaks another language and has a different culture, which is one of the beauties of Europe, which is why everybody should go and travel there. Because like this travel services company that I would run where I would take people to different countries that's what it was. You would hop in a train in the morning for two hours. You'd be in Austria and Austria has a totally different culture. They have mountains and, and isn't it interesting that, uh, and I know you've been to Budapest and that's why I'm asking. So Mm -hmm. the Austrian Hungarian empire, those two countries, both geographically, Austria and Hungary, like they, they couldn't be, any more different the further east you go the uglier it is right i mean austria is so scenic the alps vienna and you you know the it seems like the moment you cross the border into hungary it's like brown dirt and uh well and maybe i'm not giving it's fair shake right but because i didn't spend any time in these small villages on the stops along the way to budapest but Budapest is an amazing city, but the two countries, it's its hard to imagine that they were one, you know, European superpower. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's the same thing with Czech Republic and Slovakia. They used to be one, and now Slovakia is way behind economically. And and that's all driven by tourism, right, in, in the Czech Republic. I mean, that's, that's well, probably all driven by Prague. Prague is a major city. Yeah, right. you're right. Yeah, and I think um, Slovakia, I mean, probably your largest city may be half a million people. It's probably Bratislava, and you're right. I don't even know if they have that many people. Yeah. Romania is largely brown and dirt, and the ride from Bucharest to the Black Sea is not beautiful, and the train that you ride on is 1950s-esque communism mm. all the way through i mean it's rickety and it's like rusty. the commuter commuter trains in italy yes well i haven't <laughs> been to italy but oh, okay from what i understand yes 
yeah. and you ride that all the way to the Black Sea and you get there and it's it's such a different culture. Isn't isn't it interesting? Here we are in the United States and and we supposedly have one culture, right? You know, there two countries, you know, two capitals of countries could be 200 miles away from each other and they have two completely separate cultures. Right? That's like Houston to Dallas, 250 miles. In Europe it could be night and day. Yeah, which is one of the reasons that I'm a proponent of maintaining borders because if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. I like cultures. I like visiting Germany and it having its own culture distinct from Holland's culture. I hope that we maintain that and we don't get too caught up in this idea that we need to be so tolerant as to completely adapt our cultures to whatever people want it to be. I don't want to visit every place in the world and it's just like where I live back home. Yeah, all you need is every economy to stagnate and you'll you'll have that, Brad. Well, why do you say that? Well, I mean, uh, as countries prosper, uh, people from uh, countries that don't have a, a prosperous economy are always going to look to to relocate there, right? I mean, it depends. I think a lot of that is driven by politics and this idea of abject poverty versus relative poverty. Yeah, but but like uh, think about you know a place like Cleveland, Ohio, that has a declining population. And why why is their population declining? Manufacturing gone. Right. The opportunities are gone. So, you know, especially uh, someone that graduates college, you know, it's like, oh, well, I'm moving to Chicago or I'm moving to New York or, you know, they, the, the opportunities aren't in Cleveland anymore. And, and I'm, I just picked a random city, but, you know, in the Midwest, it's not unusual for, for kids to move to the Sun Belt or the Northeast or the West Coast, right? Sure. For more opportunity, that makes sense. I'll be interested to see how COVID changes cultures because of the flight from L.A. to Austin, for example. Mm. A lot of times they bring their culture with them. <laughs> so you'll have a bunch of surfer bros in Austin and it'll change things well, maybe. over time. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, Houston's, Houston's changed, right? Since you moved here when you were probably 12 or 13. Yeah, the demographics of our high school have changed a lot. The suburbs are a lot more diverse than when we were kids. I remember thinking when I was a kid that I would never need to learn Spanish. <laughs> you know, now I would probably say a third of Houston can speak Spanish, you know, which was unimaginable at the time. How old are kids when they're first taught Spanish nowadays in Houston? I have no idea. Your kids aren't taught Spanish in school? No, uh, uh-uh. my my oldest go went to a summer camp to learn Spanish this summer, but no, it's it's not a requirement in in grade school. My wife went to a school in Houston Independent School District as a kid, and they spoke only Spanish in her classes. Mm. All the kids were Spanish speaking; they didn't even speak English. She but didn't she, learn to speak English until she was seven. But that was like a second language course that she was probably in like english as a second language esl no no the school was huh. just 99 percent hispanic or whatever the 
mm-hmm. percentage was. It was it was a little Hispanic enclave, mm-hmm. which her parents live in a little enclave of Spanish speakers now. Yeah, it's all interesting. Do you have a mm-hmm. favorite podcast? Uh, the Liverpool Echo Blood Red podcast. Nice, is a soccer podcast tied to Liverpool's football team, soccer team. Let me ask you this. If you had to go live somewhere for six months pre-COVID, where would you go? Because I know you have extensive travel experience. You've been to Prague and Greece and Nicaragua and many countries. To, to live? Yeah. So the m- money being no obstacle, the, the place for me is Hanalei Bay in Hawaii. Which is in Kauai, which you yep. and Kate told me mm-hmm. about, and we loved it. You're right. It's my favorite place. It's um, the northernmost island to those listening. Furthest west, furthest north. The, I think there's one other island to the west, but it's private. It's oh, a right. Island. It must be tiny. Um, a little bit. I think it was like a, a, a leper community. Uh, it was a, a wealthy American family owned it. Mm. Um I've just read just a very little bit about it, but well, it uh, doesn't show up on the map. Y- yeah, you gotta kind of go into Google Earth and mm. really dig in to see the thing. But yeah, yeah, you can't you can't travel there. You, you I mean, it's a private island, um, so uh, you need to have permission to be on that island. I'm a big fan of Nicaragua. I think um, uh, it's it's like uh, Costa Rica, probably twenty to thirty years ago. Um, you know, there's not a lot of infrastructure, but there's also not too much in terms of tourism. So I really appreciated the cost of living there. You know, I didn't feel like I was taken for a ride as a tourist either. Uh, so I, I mean, probably anywhere on the Pacific coast of Nicaragua would be uh, a really good, more rustic type of place to be and where your dollar goes a little further. It is beautiful in Nicaragua. There's a lot of diversity where you have mountains and beach and you have colonial towns. You're right, it's affordable, but there's also political instability a lot more frequently than what Costa Rica has. Mm, Of course, yeah. But it's awesome to rent a car now with the Waze app. It's very easy to navigate. Highly recommend visiting Nicaragua if you can go. I actually posted a blog article about my trip to Nicaragua and posted the costs. So what you can expect, which I imagine those costs are depressed a little bit now. I mean, you can't visit because of COVID, but because of the recent political instabilities, I would imagine if you tried to get there now, once it opens up, it would be even cheaper than what I posted when I was there in 2018. You agree? Uh, or 2017. I would say that's probably true anywhere but San Juan del Sur. Mm. We yeah. even looked at property in San Juan, Juan del Sur. If anybody's looking to buy a second home or move permanently, I have an excellent real estate agent there that yeah, showed and, us. Yeah, and real estate prices are depressed, but not, you know, the cost of a beer used to be about a buck. It's $1.50 in just a very short time. Probably, mm. uh, I think the first time I went down to San Juan del Sur was probably four to five years ago now. Um, the last time I went was probably two years ago. And uh, I noticed a significant change in in pricing for 
every sort of service and product in, mm. in San Juan. Higher. Mm-hmm. So when I was there, I think it was three years ago, we were looking at $250,000 properties that had views of the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. But it had its downsides. San Juan del Sur feels like it's hard to get to. Like it's far from Managua, where the airport is. Yeah, so I think it's about a two-hour drive from Managua, or you can fly into Liberia in, in the northwest part of Costa Rica, but uh, it's about equal time mm. travel. So Liberia is probably cheaper to fly into, but if border patrols backed up, and that's going to be a problem. But it's San Juan del Sur is probably a 30-minute drive from the Costa Rica border. Yeah. Southwest. So when you fly to Costa Rica, you either fly into Liberia or San Jose. Mm-hmm. Liberia is in the north part of Northwest. Costa Rica. Yep. So if you're going to Tamarindo or if you want to drive into Nicaragua, you would go that way. Right. If you're going to, let's say, Jaco, Playa Hermosa, you're gonna go San Manuel San. Antonio, Capos. Yeah. Yep. You fly into San Juan, or I'm sorry, San Jose. Yep. Last question. How can people connect with you online? I guess uh, through you, Brad. You All can... right. If you have a question for Byron, please contact me. I would love <laughs> to be uh, his intermediary. His gopher, his intermediary, and connect you with Byron. Byro, thank you for doing this. Brad. All right. Thanks. Bye. Friends, thank you for tuning in. I don't have a podcast without your support. If you enjoyed this episode with Byron, please copy the link, share it with a friend, or you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, which greatly supports the show. I appreciate it. I read all of your reviews. It totally makes my day when I see it. So any ratings, reviews, I think helps to nudge others to hit the play button too. So hopefully they'll get to learn some of the same cool stuff that you and I are learning to help us live a bigger life. As you know, we air an episode every 10 days. I'll be in New Orleans probably for the next six to nine months. So if you're there, look me up or follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. 